morning, everyone. We have just been singing Trust and Obey. In uh, 1982, I don't suppose I was more than three or four months married, and um, the man who married us asked me if I would give the morning message, which I had never done before. So this was probably, I believe, the fall of 1982. <clears throat> and this was my topic, um, some, a few years later, just a couple. And the uh, idea of trusting and obeying is just simply so fundamental. And it, it, it deserves that we revisit it, and it's good that we sing it and remi remind ourselves of it. Every um, academic defense involves the reading of a thesis. And a thesis you might think of as a big fat document. I'm thankful that the one I have to read at the present moment is only 121 pages long. The problem is it's mostly math that I don't understand. But that defense is taking place on Tuesday morning and um, a thesis is not only a document, it is, a, it is supposed to contain an idea or a propositional idea, a hypothesis, in which that hypothesis is then perhaps proven or uh, in some degree disproven and, and perhaps light is shed on things that we have not had light uh, before. Trust and obey is not a, certainly not a new idea, but the thesis here for us today is that <clears throat> whether you know the Lord or you don't know the Lord, the message is the same. First, you must trust, and then you obey. Trust and obey in that order, in that order. But we can never prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. Towner and Samus, we just sang it. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. I would say for those who have, into, in large measure, have already trusted the Lord for their salvation and are continuing on a path of obedience. And the Christian life is then an expression of that initial trusting and obeying. I would like to share with you as efficiently as possible some principles of obedience. And the main one is the third one. But I could not, uh, on reflection, go and begin and have the third one without the first two. The first principle of obedience is that the gospel comes first. This is uh, perhaps um, uh, something that seems to be a bit of an odd juxtaposition of words. Obey the gospel. The gospel as an expression of God's love and as an offer. Sometimes we might think, obey it? It sounds rather cold. But given the magnitude of the issue and the seriousness of the matter and the greatness of the price at which this was purchased, that word is appropriate and is the starting word. We do have a choice. The choice is available to all. And the choice must be made. There is the need to make the choice. 
It speaks to the matter of accountability, doesn't it? What are some scriptures in this regard? Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Something that you don't act on. Maybe you think that, I, I, you know, I suspect that this is true, but I'm not going to repent. Well, I think what you don't, you don't, you are not expressing. You have the wrong attitude about what it means to trust and obey at that initial step of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. It's a command. The epistle of Peter. For it is time for, uh, to judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who obey not the gospel of God? A rhetorical question. It's a serious question. Obey the gospel. Second Thess. 1.8, dealing, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Sobering words. A very fundamental principle of obedience. That the gospel comes first and is essential before there's any further discussion. So I have written, without obedience to the gospel, first of all, there is no point in discussing whether any acts of obedience we might call good works have value. It's academic in the worst sense of the word. However, with and in the context of prior obedience to the gospel, acts of obedience receive signal recognition from God himself. That's remarkable. And that is going to be, uh, I hope, uh, expounded upon in principle number three, using the life of Abraham. The second principle is of the immediacy of the context. Obedience has a context. You are very ill-advised to say, later, later. Have you not heard accounts of men who are dying, who are able to look back on their lives and say, you know, there was a window of opportunity that God presented to me, and it has passed. What a sobering thought. What a very sobering thought. Today, if God has given you a window of opportunity out of grace and is dealing with your heart by his spirit, you are very ill-advised to ignore it and to resist it and to harden your heart. That's a frightening thing. Don't do it. Today is the day of salvation. There may be no second opportunity if God is convicting you of need. But my third principle pertains to James. And in the past month or two, if you have been faithful at services, there have been two messages pertaining to James chapter 2, which planted seeds in my mind and started ca causing the gears to turn in my head and I have been thinking about James chapter 2. And, um, of course, the passage I speak to has to do with works and what James says about works. Now, 
Examples. James gives us an example. Examples are very important. In fact, one can almost say cognitively that in the absence of examples, purely abstract thought for myself and for many people is actually difficult to hold on to. It's almost true to say that it is the how of understanding the theory in many cases. It often also, you will find, I think, and you know, that it colors our understanding of the intent of the theory. It, it, examples often real, reveal much about the idea of theory, the idea itself, I'm calling it theory, can't help it. Thirdly, they often give a sense of the power or limits of the theory. That's a, that's a, that's a, that in, in, in doctoral defenses, that's a, any that's known as a cheap question. You, you haven't had time to read the thing properly and you're on the committee, and you, like, well I can always ask this, what's the limit of your outcomes? What's the limit of the application of your work? Does it have unlimited application? Uh, the implication is of course not. It must have bounds on its legitimacy. Examples help us to, to deal with that question. And fourthly, they often reveal whether we have any grasp of the idea. Um, as someone who's tried to teach for some 25 years, both in the secular and to a lesser degree in the, in the pulpit, I can tell you from the secular point of view, you know, I, I ramble and rant in class about some body of theory and present the math, and you can just see the eyes glazing over, and you can... <laughs> And just see the eyelids starting to go down. And the other thing that you see in modern times, this is a cell phone. The other thing you see in modern times, which, which um, it's, it's actually best not to see that. It's best to keep on ranting. Uh, the, um, the, uh, tenor or the, the, the emotion or the, the, the classroom atmosphere changes suddenly when I say, let me give you an example. Okay, this could be important. Why? Because it could be on the final. So, you know, where do the questions on the final come from? From examples. So they're quite important. And they're also, um, you know, helpful in many ways. I was thinking that both in studies and in life, you know, we, we advise people not to study in the following way. You know, I have lots of books, of course, on my shelf, and some of them are collections of examples. So here's a way not to study. I could do that. Yeah, I can see how that's done. I can follow that. That doesn't look too bad. Go in the final like that. Whoa, I don't think that's a good idea. Did you, did you actually try anything yourself? Everything made sense to you. All those examples made beautiful sense to you. You need to get stuck. You need to struggle. If you don't even struggle, if you don't actually try to do these things with a certain body of information, with certain very sort of variations on cases, you actually don't learn anything. You need to struggle. And in life, we don't sail through life and not have, you know, uh, challenges that baffle us, that befuddle us, that upset us. We do. It's life. 
And that's when we say, Lord, how to deal with this? How shall I cope with this? How shall I figure this out? Yes, that's how we grow. That's real growth. So, my main one. James 2 cites a very, very important example. The example of Abraham. James talks about the role of works, as we've heard twice in the past couple of months. And then he quotes Genesis 15. Abraham obeyed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. You know, that's also in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. And it is from an event in the middle of Abraham's life. So what does James say? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. <clears throat> then he says in the next verse, Ye see, this is for you. God clearly understands the difference between the role of uh, faith in justification and works in the working out of our salvation and the development, the perfection of our faith. But he says to us, ye see, you can see, we can see, verse 24, that Abraham's subsequent works were indeed done in the context of a prior faith, a pre-existing faith. That's what the example James giving you to explain this to you. Very important. In our common parlance, we in fact have the phrase, it was an act of faith. In fact, that phrase itself has meaning in that the act is predicated upon and empowered by and on the basis of some faith of some kind. In fact, in the absence of that, a lot of times people just don't act. They don't take any action, repentance or otherwise. So as I say here, so good works or obedience are predicated upon this kind of faith. Think, this, think of this again after the next slide. Abraham, what was he faced with? This giant of faith, unknown outcomes, in at least one case, a couple of cases in his life, implied personal sacrifice. One case in particular implied great personal sacrifice. That is, I think, uh, the recipe, a couple of very important ingredients of what constitutes an act of faith. For Abraham, there were three big ones in his life. The first one is Genesis 12, where God reveals himself to Abraham, who is living in the midst of idolatry, who may have, in fact, idols in his own home, and reveals himself to Abraham and says, go to a country that I will show you. Leave everything and go to a country that I will show you. The promised result of that is very manifold blessing. Blessing to him personally, Blessing that would result in a, na a nation that would be a blessing to others that would spread through the entire human race. 
a very big promise. And what did Abraham do? He left home. He pulled up stakes and he took those, he and his, and left. He acted upon it. He believed that it was God that talked to him. He believed that God would, would be, there would be great blessing if this matter was obeyed, and he pulled up stakes. The second exercise of faith, which is actually the one referred to in Romans and Galatians and James as a quotation, is in Genesis 15, where God says to Abraham, um, you know, it, we, we commonly use the phrase, uh, last, your, your last will and testament. God says to Abraham, throw it away, discard it. Eleazar of Damascus is not going to be your heir. I am going to give you a son. Wow. And I want you to, with me, seal the deal, and we will engage in a sacrificial protocol that will be the covenant this special covenant between you, I, this, you and I, this special promise that you will have an heir of your own blood. Your, uh, you will have a son of your own. Remarkable. But I think that in our minds and in our memories, the one that really stands out of the three is, of course, the one depicted in 1635 of Abraham about to sacrifice his own son. These master painters, it's remarkable how when you go through museums and you look at this subject matter, the, 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 the single greatest uh, realm of subject matter in museums is and are scenes from the Bible. I would suggest you do the following. Rembrandt wiki list of paintings. You will be amazed at the number of detailed events in the Bible that you would think, somebody painted that? He did. Rembrandt did, and many others did. You walk around these museums, and, and you, know, you, you, you feel that the scriptures have had an enormous, enormous influence on Western thought. Isn't it sad, though, that once you pass around the First World War, it's like a, a great apostasy. It's like a great, huge cultural shift. And when you walk around these various countries, most of what you're looking at was done before the First World War. And man's interest in spiritual things has often been very misguided. In fact, it was misguided sometimes, as you know, in many of these um, portrayals as well. But I think we live in an age where, in many cases, there isn't even fundamental interest or knowledge in the things and the historical events that we see in the Bible. Very, very different culture that we live in. I often find that we, we had uh, half a dozen people on Thursday night at Dow, the, the Chinese folks, and I often find that I'm that I, I, we have a scripture, perhaps the parable of the Good Samaritan, very, very famous parable. And yet I find that I often must say that, you know, the phrase Good Samaritan, it means something to me, 
the 80 people that I just taught in hydrology, they would go, oh, you know, I've heard of that. I've heard of that. What, what is that again? Where is that? What's that from? That's the kind of modern age in which we live. Things have, have changed so dramatically. And so we read in Genesis 22, these very sobering words. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Skipping a few verses there. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them uh, walked on together. We see here the angel physically restraining the knife. And you know, this is uh, a shadow. We often say it's typological. It is a portrayal of, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ coming to give himself on the cross as a payment for our sins, to purchase our redemption. We see in it this morning, Philippians 2 was read. Philippians 2 speaks of the submissiveness of Christ in going to the cross. That boy, Isaac, going up, did not question his father. It speaks of Abraham, who spared not his son. Romans 8, delivered him up. He was prepared to deliver up his own son. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all in Romans 8. Thirdly, of course, as you know from Genesis, after the restraint comes the provision of the lamb, which in fact, without knowing it probably, Abraham said in 22.8, God will provide the lamb. At how many levels and in how many ways was that true? It was going to become immediately true. But for you and I, it would become eventually true in the Lamb of God who went to the cross as an innocent victim and paid for your sins and mine with his blood. Finally, fourth shadow of the future, Abraham, it's as though he received back his son alive. His son was alive. Speaking of resurrection, that the son indeed would, as, as it were, come back from the dead. A wonderful picture of resurrection which Hebrews 11 talks about. It says, with the insight of the Holy Spirit, that Abraham in his heart and mind thought, God can bring this boy back from the dead if necessary to fulfill his promises to me that we read about in chapter 12 and 15. Remarkable. Remarkable. And so, I think we need to take instruction from these things. I would like to run through seven facets of obedience. 
I think this is also a timeline in a couple of different senses. In one sense, we start at the beginning of the Bible and we end near the end of the Bible as we look at some concepts and verses pertaining to the idea of obedience. And in another sense, I think that in the individual life, there is that um, advancement, that maturing, that realization that we all start with. I was sitting across from Hong Ta, and we were talking about the interaction just before the Good Samaritan, which gives rise to the question of neighbor, about loving God, loving God. And it seemed self-evident to us as a group that you cannot really legislate love. Can you, can you actually make a 6,000-word contract that defines everything that love is and should be? I don't think 6,000 pages is enough. This is why lawyers have so much trouble in legislating good behavior. Because good behavior from the heart cannot be legislated. But that is the starting point. That is where we find out in Luke 17 and here that we fail. We find out of the necessity and we find out that we fall short so much and so miserably. It's required. And we aren't there, not even close. Deuteronomy 27.10 You shall therefore obey the Lord God and shall do His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today. Go back about 20 chapters and you'll find one of them is to love God with your mind and your heart and your strength. There is something of a challenge. I would suggest to you that if you know not the Lord Jesus Christ, you are very, very far from understanding the magnitude of that challenge and just how far short you come outside of Christ. Almost prophetically, we later read in scriptures that someone thought that if you execute certain ceremonies and certain procedures, that that would be fine and would actually uh, be an adequate substitute for uh, actually cover, in a sense, a, a camouflage of disobedience. And the prophet Samuel said, no, absolutely not. Obedience is what God wants. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams given mindlessly. Thirdly, obedience needs to be undivided. Oswald Chambers talks about the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes uh, are a challenge, but Chambers would argue that it should also, in a sense, make us fall into despair because it makes us realize how utterly, completely, we fall short of God's standard. There is the law in Exodus chapter 20. This is the new law, as James calls the royal law. Can you meet this standard? Not even remotely. Obedience needs to be with a single heart. And so we read, 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Is the devotion there? Where is the treasure of your heart? Now we have gospel light being shown by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we see a perfect life, a life which actually has no other desire than to do God's will. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always, always do things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe. I suggest to you they came to believe because they watched this man's life. He had credibility like no other man. His life was a, an exhibition and an exposition of the will and character of God so that he himself could say, I always do things that are pleasing to him. There is a challenge, is it not? Can any of us say that? Obedience is imitative of Christ. Moving into the realms of salvation, we read in Acts 11, and we, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. He saw the grace of God in the local church, and the empowerment is the Lord in the early church. For the individual from the heart, we can see a couple of verses here. John 14, it is motivated, obedience is motivated by love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The Lord Jesus, in 11.35 of Matthew, asks us to take his yoke upon us, upon, upon, take his yoke upon us and learn from him, and that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Outside of him, it is very burdensome. In him, there is power and strength to be the kind of obedient Christians that we need to be. I wonder whether we might, um, in a moment, sing the uh, third verse of, of uh, Trust and Obey. I want to challenge you to, both in your interactions with others and in your own life, ask that question. First of all, if you know not the Lord as your Savior, have you trusted Him? so that your obedience is motivated out of love and empowered by His Spirit. Outside of Him, without the context of faith, it, it, it is, your strength is nothing, your deeds are nothing. Obedience doesn't really have a meaning. It's only in Christ that obedience and good works have a meaning that's predicated upon having faith. This hymn is directed at Christians, that you, that you continue as you began. 
that in the way that you trusted and obeyed the gospel, that you continue to trust the Lord and obey his will for your life. Shall we pray? I think we'll just pray and then we'll sing this one verse. Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge that we are weak, that we need grace, the Spirit of Christ, to enable and to empower us to live in your will and to walk in the Spirit. Help us indeed to learn from the Lord Jesus and to take on that yoke, that perfect yoke that he has for us, for each one of us. If there was anyone here who does not know what these things mean, someone who has not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his sacrifice for their salvation, may your spirit do his own work in convicting and in bringing that per per person to repentance and faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.